0: All right. Sorry, I'm a bit late. (laughs) Let's get into it. Uh, My name is Mike Winger. I'm here to try to answer your questions on Jesus, the Bible, Christianity, um, whether that's evidence for the Christian faith or, you know, different types of proofs or maybe pastoral type of advice or counsel that you might have or just theological questions that you've got. I just promise not to make up answers (laughs) and to be open and transparent about where my limits are in my own knowledge or my own understanding of a thing. And I think by doing this, you learn how to think biblically about everything. And that's why we do these Friday Q and A's. And so our first question that we've got for today comes in from Malcolm T. And uh, Malcolm says, why would Jesus instruct us to let our good works be seen by others, Matthew 5, 16, if he also instructed us to do our good works in secret, Matthew 6, verses one through four? Am I misunderstanding something? And um, this is one of those moments where it's like, hey, did Jesus contradict himself? And I know as a younger Christian, uh, Malcolm, I'll tell you, as a younger Christian, and I don't know how long you've been a believer or not, but I'm, so I'm just speaking of myself, not you here. Um, I would get nervous when I saw something like this because you know I I, I dealt with a lot of non-believers in my in my family, um, whether they were non-believers or maybe they just. Weren't comfortable with the degree to which I was going to follow Jesus and take it seriously. You know, they just want to be like tone it down a bit. You know, be Christian, but don't be like like that kind of, you know, all, all in sort of Christian. And um, and so I dealt with a lot of that stuff. And it, it gives you this like awareness of how someone uses a, a question like this against the truthfulness of Christianity. And also the more you look into it, the more you study, the more you realize how silly the whole thing is. So let's dig into this and let's look at the actual passages and we will see, is Jesus contradicting himself? What is going on here? So Matthew 5, 16, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see. And what is the light Jesus is talking about? Well, he interprets it for you, right? That they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven So here jesus is encouraging us to live out uh like basically make sure people can see the good works that we're doing right and then in the other passage which is um let's see matthew 6 1 through 4 which just note for a second we're like less than one full chapter away this is in matthew 5 here's matthew 6 in fact this whole section matthew 5 through 8 is the sermon on the mount jesus is literally giving one long message so in the same sermon jesus said Not only let people see your good works, but he said in Matthew 6 verses 1 through 4, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give it to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but... When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Obviously, this this is this is um, uh, hyperbole, right? Jesus is using hyperbole here, like your hands don't know. But, you know, the idea is that it's just, it's not about publicizing it. So that you're giving maybe, maybe in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, let's see if we can figure out how to understand these verses. And part of it is that I've emphasized, and I... I did this intentionally. As I read it, I emphasized certain parts and I did not emphasize other parts. By doing that, I I made it maybe more made you more aware of the supposed contradiction that's here. But those who are paying attention who are thinking biblically about these things, looking carefully at the verse, you're like, this is no contradiction. Why? Because look at everything Jesus says, not just two words, right? Before others. There's more. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. What is the purpose of the good works I'm doing, I'm encouraged to do before others? It's that they would give glory to God, that my life would be a witness and they would see me as a Christian living consistently with my Christian beliefs, that they would say, and, and, and I've seen this powerfully, and maybe you have too. Those of you listening, you're, you're a Christian, but you are not a hypocrite. Not that you never fail, not that you never make mistakes, but you're, you're not are not. A complete hypocrite, and you have you have talked to people who, before they knew you closely, they they just thought all Christians are hypocrites, and you broke that stereotype for them because they met a believer who is who is consistent and who is sincere and who they had a lot of skepticisms about, right? And looking at you kind of sideways, and they go, "All right, well, you know, I wish more Christians were like you." This is a powerful thing. That's what we're talking about here in this passage. What are the good works Jesus is talking about for a little bit? A little bit more detail. Um, well, he, he's here talking about the only thing really that precedes this is the Beatitudes. Um, you're poor in spirit, you're mourning, you're, therefore you're comforted, all these things. But what is what are the things here that are things you can do that will shine your good works? You're hunger and thirsting for righteousness. right? You're not looking for applause from others. You want righteousness in your life. The Pharisees wanted applause. You, if you're going to do what Jesus wants, you want righteousness. Um, you're being merciful to others. You're not doing that for any audience other than God, ultimately, right? You're going to receive mercy and you're merciful to others. You're pure in heart. That's an internal purity. This is something the Pharisees completely lacked. This is the shining you're to do is to be a sincere, godly person. And blessed are the peacemakers, right? Your, your, your person desires to to bring peace to people and not to exacerbate the, the difficulties of separation either between people and God or people and each other when possible. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is, they do the right thing, and they get punished for it, and they keep doing it anyways. So then blessed are those are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Falsely. So when you're falsely accused, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So then he's like, hey, I'll be the salt of the earth, be light, and bring glory to God. But when you get to Matthew 6, 16, Jesus, uh, Matthew, the next sorry, six verses one through four, the next section, the supposed contradiction, it's a completely different scenario. Jesus is not talking about people who are internally serving God out of a sincere desire for holiness and love, to to bring honor to Christ, to seek righteousness, to bless those who curse us, to um, to be holy in our conduct for the sake of holiness. Jesus wants that to be seen by the world, yes, but he doesn't want you to do what the Pharisees do. And this, I think, is such a huge and important warning. When Jesus warns us of things in the Bible, when the Bible period warns us of human issues, right? Like here's a pitfall to avoid. It's always on target. It's always like this is an actual pitfall you will potentially suffer from. You start your path of serving Jesus by trying to be righteous for righteousness sake, for the sake of holiness and for the love of God and to be able to be a genuine witness in the world. And then as time goes by, you're doing it for your reputation. And how do you know? Because in secret, you don't do the same stuff you do in public. Because in your heart, your heart betrays that these actions you're doing outwardly are not genuine. But they're being done for the applause and the eyes of others. And that's what the Pharisees fell into. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Jesus just told me to practice my righteousness before other people. But he adds more. In order to be seen by them. This is this is the warning. So it's not a contradiction; it's a qualification. Do righteous deeds in front of others, right? That God would be glorified, but not because you're seeking an audience. Like you don't find the audience. Od- this is what this is what social media um, philanthropists do, right? They they find a homeless person, they give them a large amount of money, or they do something really wonderful for them. They film the whole thing with three different camera angles. They put the whole thing up online, and they make a bunch of money for themselves, and fame, and appreciation. And I'm like, this is this is the Pharisee. This is a ferret You're a Pharisee. And this, I mean, you're not a Pharisee in your theology. You're not a Pharisee in your views of Christ because of this. You're making a mistake that the Pharisees made when they did their things to be seen by others. So I do my holiness to be holy and righteous before God, and to bless others, and I let them and I let them see that. But I don't seek crowds to do it. They sought crowds. Um, so then you have no reward. You, you've already got your reward it's from people. So he gives examples when you when you uh, when you give to the needy, right? sound no trumpet before you. So this is a perfect example because you're still giving. Jesus still wants you to give to the needy. He just doesn't want you to sound the trumpet. Ah that's the, that's the balance. The needy person knows you gave. The needy person knows that you've helped them but you're not announcing it to others so that that person is a pawn. And your gift is a is is a is a um, an investment in your own reputation. None of that garbage, right? This is I'm going to give to you just to bless you. I'm not going to sound a trumpet, and then my my good work will shine before who? Not before the crowds. Before this needy person I just blessed in the name of Jesus. This is genuine holiness. This is what God calls us to. I love this because whenever you you see what looks like a supposed contradiction in Scripture, it usually means there's something important there for us to learn and you dig in deeper, and you get more information. So you guys are loading your questions in the live chat, as we always do. For those who have not, you know, joined me, or you're new to the Friday Q&As, um, you just show up, and you load your question right here in the live chat, right at the very beginning, So, but not before the stream begins, because otherwise we have so many questions before the stream starts, where we're not answering any during the stream. So we just take the questions during the stream, after it starts, you put a Q in the, as the first letter of your question in the live chat on YouTube, and then we pull out questions. But some of you are like, "Hey, Mike, you know, why is it that some of my questions seem like they don't get answered? I sometimes I ask the same questions continually, and it doesn't get answered. And there can be a reason for that. And the reason is, as I'm showing you on my screen here, I may have already answered your question. Uh, sometimes we we you know I don't want to answer the same question over and over and over again because I feel like it's less fruitful for most of the people watching. And I do occasionally hit the same question more than once if I haven't hit it recently. But what you could do is you could go to my website, right, BibleThinker.org, and you can use what's called the clip search feature. Now, we have two search features. They're right there side by side. And you go to the clip search feature. But I've got a link directly to that clip search feature. And you could type a, a key phrase in here, like, say, um, unforgivable sin. Like, I'm just typing something in here. I think I misspelled it. <laughs> Put it... Oh, um or we don't have that one in there. Interesting. Okay. So what I could type is um I should have like planned one to type here. I just type Melchizedek. I'm getting all like nervous. I'm going to misspell in front of all these people. So Melchizedek, here's now here's the thing what you'd see if you type Melchizedek and you wanted to an answer on that or maybe you want to an answer on anger or you want to an answer on um did Jesus? What did Jesus say about a bimelech? You type a bimelech in there or something like that. You can type a phrase, and these, these links will take you not just to a video where I talk about an issue, but specifically to the timestamp, to the exact moment in the video where I talk about that exact question or that topic. This has been put together by volunteers, uh, most of whom have done it just for free, who've put together all these resources for you because the agenda with this ministry is just to bless as many people as possible. Um, I don't I don't ask for anything in return. I just want this to bless you guys. Anyway, that's the search feature. Again, there's a link below directly to that search feature, or you can go to BibleThinker.org, click the search button, and look for what says the clip search feature. And now I'll go to question number two. Question number two comes in from uh, Eben Hazer, who says, Hey, Pastor Mike, Romans 5.2 says, We stand on grace. In Acts 4.33, it says, Great grace was upon them all. How do, Does that mean some have more grace? I've heard you say we don't get grace little by little. Yeah. Um, okay, so what we're doing here, this is actually a really important principle if you're going to understand the Bible. In, in, in many verses where you might get a little confused. And here's a principle I had to learn really slowly over time. And it was the idea that the Bible has less theological terms and it has more just language, normal language. So when you look at the word grace in the Bible, you don't want to put too much theological definition on it if that definition is not in the word itself. What, what am I, let me let me give you an example. Um, the word justified is a good example of this. So in the Bible, we are justified by faith. But then it, that's, that's what Paul writes about. And then James, in James chapter two, says we're not justified, justified by faith alone. Now, if you take a theological definition of the word justified in both of those verses, you're going to have to say, well, there's some kind of contradiction going on here. Because I have a definition of justified that means like um, made righteous before God. That's what that means, justified. But if you actually look up justified in a Greek dictionary, the word that's being used there, it doesn't mean that. Justified doesn't mean made righteous before God. Justified just means like, uh, well, it can mean a number of things. It can mean proven innocent or made to be innocent or made to be right. It could also just mean proven correct, proven true. And when you realize that the same word justified has a variety of uses, then you look at Paul and you go, oh, I have to look at the context to know. What Paul's talking about how I get saved. I'm justified as in made righteous before God. James may be talking about how I prove to others how I just... You know, I claim to be a Christian, and James goes, how do you justify that claim? How do you demonstrate that it's true? And he goes, that's through your works. So works demonstrate my faith, but faith alone is what actually saves me. This is this was like, for me, a light bulb moment that went on when I was studying Scripture on this particular topic, because I'm like, oh, I was reading in these theological books the term justified, and there's this careful theological definition. That doesn't mean that's what the word meant in Greek. That's what the theological concept means. It doesn't mean every time you see the word in the Bible, that's what it means. So in the same sense, the word grace does not always mean salvation. Grace is <clears throat> can mean favor um, and specifically unmerited favor. And so that that's pretty generic. This could go several different ways. When it comes to, um, say, Romans 5.2, we are—let um, me actually put it up on your screen here— and we'll see how the word grace is being used in different ways uh through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand in romans paul's talking about how we not only are saved by grace but we stand by grace here is the is unearned i save by this unearned this thing i don't deserve getting what i don't deserve god's forgiveness and kindness and and he just graces it to me it's, it's a gift I stand in that every day, every moment, right now, I'm forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the work he has done. I stand in that grace today. So it gives me confidence in my relationship with God and then I can rejoice in the hope of 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 the uh, of the glory of God that is coming. But then when you get to the other verse, which is Acts chapter 4 verse 33, what we see is Yes, the word grace has this theological definition, but, but that's a summary of scripture teaching on how we get saved. The word grace itself also has just a Greek meaning. And in the context here, um, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What does that mean? It means simply that God was blessing them. Here, grace is just God's undeserved kindness and favor, but it's not salvation. It's not like the apostles were getting saved more than they were before. I mean, Peter was already saved. Was he not truly forgiven and saved at this point in time in Acts 4? Yeah, he was already saved. This isn't about them getting saved. This isn't salvific grace. This is just grace in the sense of God's kindness and favor. So great grace is upon them, and they have great unity, and they're continuing to grow in numbers. More people are, are getting saved. So God's favor, God's blessings are with the early church. That's all it's saying there. And again, I think this comes down to a, a root issue. And I forgive me if I lose anybody on this stuff. Reading uh, theological books or hearing theological teaching where we take a term like justification and we think that that's what the, the, the word itself means in the text, instead of realizing we're just labeling a doctrine. The doctrine's true. We get the doctrine from scripture, but we shouldn't. Read that doctrine every time we see the word because words have multiple meanings depending on the context. Yeah. <laughs> so, in other words, treat the, the Bible like it's it's using no- language normally and not always using theological language. There's exceptions to this rule. There are some words in the Bible like propitiation that have some pretty deep theological meanings. But, but words that are used commonly have more common meanings and a variety of meanings. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hope that, hope that helps you out. All right, number three. This is Clay Branton who says, Hello, Mr. Winger. Well, hello, Clay. What do you do when you've made a promise to God and either forgot the specifics of it or forget you've made it all together? Um, well, what can you do, Clay? If, if if you're like, I know I promised God something, but I don't remember what it was, you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I don't recall. Help me. Re- I mean, just... I'm just being honest with you. If I was in that spot, I just pray, Lord, help me remember what it was that I promised. But I would also say that um, you may you may be suffering from a bit of recklessness in promises you're making to God to think that you would forget them. Now, maybe you've got a reason, like maybe there's a reason why uh, mentally you're like really having a difficulty remembering these things or or things in general. Maybe there's something else going on, in which case I'd be like, yeah, I think the, I think the Lord knows and just live holy, <laughs> you know, to the best of your ability and don't. Don't worry too much about it if you if you have that kind of thing going on, but um, Ecclesiastes talks about this and it kind of like says, basically I'll, I'll summarize here, paraphrase for you, just the idea is, you don't want to recklessly come before God and make promises to God. It's better to come and just come humbly. Um, sometimes we want to in our in our zeal, our genuine zeal for the Lord, we want to like make make these big, giant, lofty commitments. Um, Think carefully before you do that. Think carefully before you do that. If this commitment is wise, from a Christian standpoint, not just a worldly one, right? I'm not not saying like, well, that would cost you too much. I don't mean that. Just think carefully before you do that. And it's okay if you don't make lots of promises to God. I mean, you know, what the Lord wants, His general will for your life is pretty well revealed without any promises you've made. The, the the one commitment you make is to trust in Christ and maintain that faith and trust and commitment to Christ throughout the rest of your life. That's the main commitment. So just be slow to make these lofty promises before God. He does take it seriously. He always keeps his word. He expects, expects us to keep his word and make a promise before God. That's a very lofty thing. If I'm literally incapable of remembering what the promise was, then there's not much you can do except apologize to the Lord. Say, I don't know why I don't remember this, but... Maybe I was frivolous or maybe I just honestly have a memory issue and the Lord understands. He knows our weaknesses. Um, just like if, if I, let's say I, I was committed to like helping with, with a, an outreach or something and then I break my leg in a car accident and, the, and everybody understands. Of course, Mike, you have a, broke your leg. No one's going to hold that against you. You're not going to. Just in the same sense, the Lord knows if you made a promise and you can't recall it. God, of course, understands that. All right, let's go to number four. Um, uh, Marie says, what is he- a healthy way to look at the future with all the disasters and revelation? I have trouble building up my life without having fear that everything will change soon for the worse. Uh, Marie, I felt that way in the past. I'm going to speak to you. Just let me say, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Bible, okay? But you're not actually asking a question about the Bible. I'll, let me, Well, I'll mention the Bible for a moment here and then I'll then I'll give you my counsel just as like a, A fellow christian okay who's who's been involved in churches that talked very much about the end times and the and the and the the tribulation second coming that kind of thing um so as far as the bible is concerned i think that the the overarching rule okay revelation does talk about these things i personally at least at this point in my understanding i think these things are talking about future i think the tribulation is a real thing um, so I do lean that way with my eschatology, right? So I do think that revelation stuff like you is going to be happening in the future. But here's the biblical part I want to really drive in. We don't know when. We really don't know when. And, we, and you don't know it's even going to happen in your lifetime. Now it could, but it could also happen a thousand years from now. 15,000 years from now. 80 years from now. Like It could happen at any time. Now add to this going through church history and seeing how many people thought that the end was absolutely imminent in their lifetimes. Now it's one thing here, there's two very different things. One's healthy, one's unhealthy. It's healthy to be ready for Jesus to return and ready to be able to say, I'm committed Lord, I will go with you through any trial and any tribulation. I will be ready when you return, whether you take me home or you allow me to go through hard times, I will be ready for those things. I'm committed to you. It's something else and unhealthy to be expecting disaster and living like you're right about it when you have no idea. That will that will affect your life in negative ways. It really will. Um, so I, I would encourage you to put a giant question mark, and here's my pastoral counseling on this, or my counseling even as a brother in Christ. Put a big giant question mark on when... All this stuff may happen and realize what you can do is prepare your best for the future that you are most likely going to see, which is to say, if things continue as they are, how will I be able to proceed? Do I have a plan in place in my life? If the world continues to spin as it has for the past many years Am I ready for that, or am I crippled and unable to prepare for a, for a normal future that most humans have had because I'm worried about the possibility of eschatology happening? Boom, right now. And I'm not I'm not trying to get into the debates of whether you guys are pre-trib or post-trib or any of that. Whatever your views are, there I'm asking: Are you ready for that? And are you ready for the for the possibility, the very very real possibility that life will continue as it is, and Jesus won't even come back? And the tribulation won't even happen in your lifetime if you're not ready for that you are irresponsible this is this is something i say to you and i say to me if you are not ready for the tribulation the rapture whatever to not happen if you're unprepared for that and you're un, like it's not in your plans you are irresponsible and it's going to cause harm now some of you out there a few pe- people out there you're like no no I, in fact it's going to ramp up i give you guys my prediction this is not a prophecy is my prediction, because I've been around long enough to know this. People love round numbers, right? So they wanna say like, well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. And depending on your math, and there's debates on this, on on when Jesus shows up, earliest to be like 26 AD, Jesus shows up, and then earliest for his death is 28. Um, A lot of people say his death is in 30, 31, 32, or even 33. Whatever your view is on that, here's what this tells me. People are gonna be absolutely spazzing out in the next several years. 28 26 27 28 20 all the way through 33 maybe even a little after they're going to be predicting The 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 second coming predicting tribulation predicting all those things now It's possible that it will happen, but i'm telling you whether it happens or not They will predict it because they they whoever this you know the people i'm talking about they Love trying to figure out the mysteries of that the bible has not answered by doing arbitrary math problems (laughs) And then telling you that they can predict the time You need to have a a very real plan and preparation for if you're wrong about your guesswork on eschatology. That's all I'm saying. I hope that helps you. Um, Yeah, I hope that helps. Let's go to number five. This is from uh, Angel WVM, who says, What to say if someone uses a creator has the right to do whatever with their own creation as a pro-choice argument? Mm. Mm, I've never heard that one as a pro-choice argument. Let's think about the logic of it a little bit. Um the the argument is, hey, a creator, a creator, has the right to do whatever with their own creation. I mean, I would in, in principle, I agree with this as you apply it to God. God has a right to do whatever he wants with his own creation. I, I would agree with that. I do think however, God is is constrained by his own moral goodness in a good way. this is not a negative constraint, this is a positive thing. God does not violate His own moral goodness, but I do think He has a right, like Romans says, over the clay. I, I believe this. So, can you transfer this over to the idea of a mother and her child? Is she a creator who has a right to do what she wants over her creation? Now, let's just let's just let's just pretend the answer is yes. And I wanna show you how horrific and evil the conclusion now is. If you say yes, then that mom can kill her kid at any point in their life. Because a creator, we're gonna call her a creator here, has the right to do whatever she wants with her own creation. But then if you're gonna call the mom a creator, you need to call the dad a creator too so two people have a right to kill this thing, or maybe you require them to agree. At any way, at any rate, none of this is the pro choice position yet. Right? Though they, they definitely don't preach or teach that you should be able to kill a child that's seven years old to take to go shoot your 15 year old in the head because you decided you have a right to do what you want with your own creation. Like none of them believe that. And so they have to find some arbitrary reason why they limit the pro choice stuff to a the mother only when mother and dad were both involved. And B, the um, the the time in the womb, or even only a certain time in the womb, and these will become arbitrary. And you can then you can try to expose the hypocrisy of the views and the silliness of the views. But but then, okay, so it's, it's horrific. It's horrific. This means that my mom could like walk up right now. My four foot, I think she's four foot ten now. She's shrinking. My <laughs> four foot t- ten mother could walk up with a knife, stab me in the neck right now, and and that pro choice person who said a creator has the right to do. They would have nothing to say about this. They would have they would have no logical argument against it, right? Because they're being crazy, immoral. Um, and the thing about mothers in our culture—no offense, women—but you are not morally pure, okay? Neither are the men. Uh, not like God, okay? God is moral moral perfection, and we're not. And so, giving a human that kind of power is a scary, scary thing. Whereas God, even when he judges, even when he does whatever he wants with his own creation, it's not this arbitrary cruelty and violence. It's always purposeful. It's always, even when God judges, even when God brings violence, there's the moral restraint of his own character that's there. But, I reject the idea that the mother is the creator. Because we're all contingent, right? So, uh, that word contingent is an interesting word. Um, You and me depend, right, on our parents. We also depend on other things, like Oxygen and food and 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 other things like that. So we're all dependent So if you zoom back and you go, okay, well, I'm dependent on my mom But who is my mom dependent on well her mom and her dad and oxygen and food and employers and money and and property and everything else well That means that I'm not really The creator I'm like a creator in some sense, but I'm not really the creator in a sense that's equivalent to God You can't compare me to God The way that I make a baby as a human is not comparative to to the way God creates all things out of literally nothing. Everything's contingent upon him, and, and, uh, and it doesn't go vice versa. He doesn't depend on anything. So that your mom, who's there killing you now at the age of 25 because she doesn't like the way your mustache looks, and she has a right to do what she wants with her own creation, she herself is someone's creation. God's creation. Even more than her parents'. And so God, who's the ultimate creator, has us prescribe moral policies and moral rules for how we should conduct ourselves. So if we're going to say that a creator has rights, then it has to start with God and trickle down from there. And we have to realize we're not creators in the same sense, and we're also dependent upon him, and therefore, we're required to obey his laws and his rights. I guess I'm just saying everything about that statement is is, um, foolish. Number six. Let's go to number six. This is coming from Anna Elmira. Hi, Mike. A local street preacher uses holy water on the ground, which he says keeps demonic activity from disrupting his preaching. I haven't seen scriptural support for this. Is it biblical? Thanks. Anna, Um, I don't think the concept of holy water is biblical. I don't think the concept of, and, and, and here more generically, the idea of I'm going to uh, pray over and bless a certain object, water, or something else a crucifix or something and then that's going to carry with it these sort of supernatural qualities that will then bless others Um, some people will point to the book of acts here for defense of this view and they'll say well they took like paul's handkerchief and then they carried it to people people were healed or people fell on the bones of elijah in one one instance it happened once fell on the bones of elijah after he had died and uh, elisha and that person came back to life they were healed And these are true things, but except there's a big difference. Paul, to to our knowledge, didn't bless or pray over his handkerchief to make it something holy. Nobody did something to the bones of Elisha to make them that way. This was simply a one-time demonstration. And, And nor did we see his handkerchief continuing to do this afterwards. Like 10 years later, they're still passing the handkerchief around. Why didn't Paul just give his handkerchief to Epaphroditus who almost died when he was sick or to Timothy who had stomach issues and Paul's like, "Hey, drink some wine, not just water because of your stomach issues." Why is he like, "Paul, just send me your hanky." <laughs> send me the holy hanky, Paul, because this was like a, a an amazing one-time thing. This was this was odd and strange even in that incredibly miraculous season in the early church. So, no, we don't see any normal certain people can bless certain objects and then those objects carry with them sort of spiritual power. That doesn't mean it can't be true what it does mean is it's extra biblical like this is not a biblical thing this is i'm not saying it's anti or unbiblical in the, in the view of uh it being refuted by scripture no that can't happen i'm not saying that i'm saying that it doesn't arise from scripture and it doesn't appear to arise from um any even examples we see in scripture there's no teaching and there's no seeming examples they were to anoint with oil in the book of James. It talks about it like anoint with oil. But the oil itself was just oil. It wasn't that o- the oil was taken and like a, pre- a spiritual procedure happened first. They anointed it with oil. And this was a common thing in healing at the time when they they would u- apply oils. We do it today as well, right? There are certain times where we use oils on on, on things to help people. And oil is also just uh, part of a cleaning agent that they would use back then. So uh, they don't have like showers. Okay. <laughs> so... um. So there's a lot of different things to consider there, but it's nothing like the holy water thing. I don't think the holy water thing has any connection to scripture. I think it has a ton of connection to church history. And I don't mean the apostles' church history, I mean much later. Relics over time started to become more and more important. That is like, oh, it's the pinky bone of this one like really godly person. And they started thinking that had power, right? As a normal thing, not as like a rare, wow, what was that thing? With Like Elisha, and they didn't pass his bones around after that. It was just a one-time thing, but rather like a normal thing And so this has been going on for a while. Also, it has to do with the idea that like In Catholicism in particular, there's a view that you've got these mediators. Um, oh my how do I explain this in a brief way? I'm gonna say a few things real quickly. If, if some of them don't make sense. It's okay. You'll get my main point otherwise Forgive me for not having all the time in the world to answer each question The Catholic Church views itself as like kind of a a, a series of mediators that mediate grace. How is that? Well, they view grace as like kind of like a substance. It's not a physical, but it's like a substance. It's like it's like almost like a substance that they're like the straw that's going to sort of bring that grace to you. So when you go to a priest and a priest blesses the water, he mediates through with the keys of Peter and through the Roman Catholic Church, like this idea of like putting some of that grace sort of. infused into these sort of objects and things then you take that water with you you have their authority and you have their power mediating the substance into these things making them special and then you can apply them Um, i think that this is fundamentally flawed in that the whole mediator idea is i've only got one mediator between god and man that's the man christ jesus and that when i apply these things i'm actually making a mistake thinking that this water blessed by this imposter mediator system is somehow the power that's going to be like, nah, man, how about I just pray and I go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Remember the demons were like, we know Paul. <laughs> that I just go out in the power of the Holy Spirit with holiness in my life, with reliance upon the Lord, and I have prayer, maybe fasting. Those are things I would do if I felt like there was demonic things going on. There, there would be my opinions on that. Would I go and argue with S street preacher about it? No, I would just, I would just mind my own business personally. But you asked, so there's my thoughts. Um, Number seven, Eric Williams says, "If God is eternal and He knows everything, beginning and beginning and end, why does He set up a thousand year millennium kingdom? What are the reasons for this biblically?" Thank you. Um, So this is actually a tough. Well. You have sort of two questions here, right? One is, why does God not just do the millennium, right? But why does he do anything if he already knows everything? I want you to consider this for a minute. Eric, if God knows everything, why would he do anything? And now if you can answer that question, then you can probably answer this question about the millennium. Though the specific reasons why God does the millennium, that's a different challenge. Now I am premillennial, so I do think there is a thousand-year reign. I hold my eschatology somewhat loosely. I mean, I'm iron grip on the physical bodily return of Christ, right to to rule and reign. I'm a hundred percent on that. The the timing, the details, and things like that, I, I'm, I'm looser on personally, and I don't divide with other believers on those issues. But but yeah, like God knows whether or not you're going to get saved. So why would He even make you? Well. Maybe because he actually wants a relationship with you. Maybe because knowing about it's different than it actually happening, right? Like there's movies I've already seen where I already know everything that happens in the movie, and then I go and watch it again. Well, Mike, if you already know the movie, why would you watch it again? Well, like, well just just because knowledge is not my only goal in life of, about with the things that I do, and I think the same thing for God. He, he doesn't just want to know what would happen if, but he actually wants to let things happen. And I, I mean that may sound simplistic, but I think that that's probably true. But the millennium—why is there a millennium? So here's here's one theory, and I don't know if you can you can support it with scripture, or the or and I don't think scripture refutes it either. But it's the idea that God has sort of um, tried the rulership of of mankind under all these different structures, and they've all failed, except for one. Let me give you an overview, right? In Eden, and I'll try to remember off the top of my head how they, how they frame this. In Eden, it's man is just perfect. Man is in perfection, but he, and he has free will, but man chooses to fall. So just giving man a, a good starting point with free will, they end up falling. Then we have like the era of, of just man's conscience reigning, and that's like between uh, the fall and the flood, And mankind just gets wicked and wicked and wicked and wicked, and they get worse and worse and worse until God floods the earth and just wipes it clean and restarts. So this is the era of man's like fallen with free will, just do what you want without regulation. And not that they don't have moral laws in their hearts, but but without like control. Then we have more of like a governmental era. After the flood, God sort of sets up with Noah, like, hey, if a man commits murder, you know, his life will be taken. And then the nations begin. So there ends up being like, man will be governed under god but but with governments to try to control and curb the violence and the wickedness of mankind that's one of the roles of government i think biblically speaking and and that fails and the nations are all doing their own thing You have the tower of babel they all gather together to rebel against god then you have god chooses one nation and he will personally govern this nation that's israel you see how these are different ways of governing humanity that are that are being tried and they all fail the israel one fails too God gives them laws. God gives them his blessings. God's going to be in their midst, at least in the temple. Um, and so that fails too. The people rebel. They, they fall short. They do all these things. And finally, Jesus shows up and Jesus does the church, the church, which is, which is Jew and Gentile, you know, all, all put together in Christ as we put our faith in Christ. He's the one who succeeds where we all fail. And it's just our faith in him that makes us part of God's government. But the world's not being governed. The world's just being evangelized right now. Right? The world's just being evangelized. We're not, they're not being governed by Christ, just evangelized. The thousand-year reign is different in this. Now the world is actually governed by Christ. Now it's a world run and enforced by, by Christian truth, by Jesus himself. That's the thousand-year reign. Jesus has actually returned. He's reigning on the earth. And even this ends at the thousand years with a great rebellion where many people decide they don't want it. Then we have the final state of things, and that is only those, that is a a universe where only those who participate in the kingdom are those who voluntarily gave their hearts to Christ. Even though they fell, they voluntarily have chosen Christ, and the kingdom is populated by people who lovingly want to serve their, their Savior. And that is the eternal state. So do you see how like every, this is one perspective, hey, everything's been tried, and it always fails until you get to the final state. And some philosophers, side note, they actually say, hey, um, there's no way to make a perfect world initially. You can't just make a perfect world. What you have to do is make a world that has flaws because we learn so much through those flaws that we could then bring them into a second world that is a perfect state. Now we have the lessons of pain and suffering, but without the continuing of pain and suffering. And that that was kind of what God was doing all along. So um, maybe... Is is that, is that, does the scripture clearly say that's what's happening with all these different ways in which God has interacted with humans? I don't think it clearly says that, but at least this seems consistent with that. So it's a possibility it might be what's going on. All right, let's go to question number eight. This is from a large Marge sent me. And now it's been so long since I've seen. Pee-wee, Pee-wee Herman, like I was a kid, you know, and a Pee-wee Herman, but I remember, tell him large Marge sent you. And I don't even remember the movie or what he was on a great adventure. Or some kind. I don't remember what the adventure was, or, but I remember the scene where there was some trucker lady going, tell him large Marge sent you. And so, yeah, you, you're probably, probably about my age. Uh, can you explain the difference between the concepts of perichoresis and modalism? They seem to be very similar ideas on the surface. Thanks so much for your ministry; God is using it greatly. Um, Perichoresis—I I mean, I don't know what that is. I <laughs> just got to be honest with you. Um, you may have overestimated my, my theological intelligence. I mean, modalism—we know is the basic idea of modalism is that um, um, God is not three persons in one, but rather it, it's more of a. It's more like costumes. Like God wears the costume of the Father, and then He comes and He's wearing He's wearing the costume of the Son. He's wearing the costume of the Spirit. So that's modalism. Um, perichoresis. I, I would have to look into it. I, I wouldn't. I'd be afraid to like just Google it now and and give you such a such an uncareful response. So yeah, forgive me. I, I may look into that. Um, but I, I have to admit too. Large Marge sent me. I'm not really a big fan of big theological terms. Now they're not bad. I'm just not a huge fan of them. For the following reasons people there's some people are really good at remembering all the terms and what they mean i have a feeling that most people especially who are trying to learn theology but they don't have all the time in the world to study it they would they would be served better would we explain things in a more simplistic language and use latin terminology less often or i think in this sense it looks greek um I think that that would that people as a teacher, I'm always thinking, how, you know, what's the what's the learning tolerance of my audience? What's their capacity to I, I think of it like a, I'll give you an analogy. I show this to other teachers sometimes. I think of it as like juggling so I can juggle like three balls at a time. Right. And um, it's not that hard. Actually, you learn how to juggle three. I can't really do four. Uh, maybe if, I, if I'm outside, and I'm throwing really high. You know, I can do four. You give me five, though, and they all come falling down. Right? I, I just can't do five, and I, I don't just lose one of them. There's a good chance I lose all of them. Now, I think of learning like this, since I'm not gonna answer your question, I'll just tell you some other random thing. Sorry about that. Um, I think of learning like this. Learning as a teacher, you, you should be aware that your audience can only learn so much at one time. And this is different online. With online, you can pause a video, you can come back later. But in person, in a classroom environment, or on a Sunday morning, there's only so much somebody can absorb. And I think of it like this, like if I give them an an idea, another idea, another idea. Some people are capable of juggling four, seven, nine, two, and their tolerances are different. You'll always lose somebody and there'll always be someone saying you didn't give them enough. But I want to find that sweet spot where I give you enough ideas to learn where you don't drop everything. But you also don't have so few ideas to learn that you feel like you didn't get much out of that. Um, Now online I tend to be like drinking from the fire hydrant. I give a lot more ideas But you guys would be surprised how much I hold back from you How much I don't tell you and how much I summarize where I'm giving you like a deep theological teaching with No terminology whatsoever where I just use as simple language as possible or I'll throw out the word But you the well it, you feel like you don't have to learn that word because you know the idea I think that that is a more effective way to teach most people because most people are not in a theological school and don't have a mind for just memorizing tons and tons of terms. Some people are really good at that, though. And it's just everything's terminology. But man, they're so hard to understand. How do you understand someone when you don't understand 12 of the words they used in that sentence? (laughs) Anyway, I should look into that one, though. It's on me. I have no idea. Leaf Me says, Dear Pastor Mike, have you talked about Dr. Bart Ehrman? Example, your Atheist scholar misleads millions of people video yes, which I have done a video on that. Does he also use these techniques on his professional peers? Um, okay, so I, I have talked about Bart Ehrman leaf me um, as you said and I'll put a link to this video you guys uh, Bart Ehrman is an atheist or agnostic depending on where he is when you ask him he uses both terms to describe himself And he is one of the people who's most effectively used his scholarly status to drive people away from the truth of Christianity. Like, that's just facts of reality. Like, so many, so many, so many people have um, at least given up a profession of faith in Christ um, or of the trustworthiness of Scripture and will say that Bart Ehrman was a significant part of that. Or even, it wasn't Bart Ehrman directly, it was someone he influenced. And so I've done some content on him. I will put a video down below where I try to catalog where he was... Very clearly and I use quotes and I show exactly where he says things and play clips of him very clearly misleading people Using deceptive tactics to mislead people specifically to make Christianity and the Bible look bad So I'll put that video in the in the link down below and maybe one of the mods can put the Bart Ehrman video in the live chat if you haven't already Um, yeah, it's just called atheist scholar mislead millions of people. But your question is does he do that to his professional peers? um So, yeah, like a lot of scholars will find they we will find that they write two different kinds of books, a scholarly book and a popular level book. And so often they'll even write the same book twice. They'll write a book that's on the scholarly like, uh, you know, William Lane Craig does this. He wrote he wrote a book called. um, uh, Reasonable Faith, which is more scholarly and it, it is very difficult to read for me. Right. I read the same paragraph like six times to go. Oh, I get what you mean right, it's, it's challenging, right? That That's reasonable faith. Then he wrote a book called On Guard. On Guard is the popular level book, right? One's written for more scholars, one's written for more popular level, and that book's more simplified and more accessible and, say, uses less, uh, gives people less things to juggle, less terminology and that sort of thing. Although it's still there, it's still a challenging book, but not as much. So Barnierman does the same thing. He'll write two books. He'll write a scholarly level one, then he'll write a pop one. And he is known, at least to many people, as as framing things very differently because in the scholarly one, he wants to, you can say things that are wrong as a scholar as long as you say it the right way. Like, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to think that such and such, right? Like that's how you say it as a scholar. And then as a, as you know, to the popular audience, maybe you say something like, instead of, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to think such and such, you know, the, the Bible is wrong. Or something. Um, you say something else like, um. You know if you want to believe the bible is you know true and inspired that's fine you can believe what you want religious beliefs can be your own thing you know, but it's just not true that's just not the facts of reality and you wouldn't write that in the scholarly thing because all the scholars are like well you know there's problems with your perspective you know they, you're overreaching here so the overreaching is done on his popular works and a more careful way of talking is done on the scholarly level scholars do this all the time um, they say things like, it's possible, it's probable, it seems, and they'll use cautious language as a way of avoiding criticisms, which is can be, you know, good, and it can also be misleading. So it just depends. But Bart Ehrman, uh, I, I like what William Lane Craig says about him. He says that he does this to such an extent that on his scholarly work, he calls Bart Ehrman good Bart, and in his popular work, he calls him bad Bart. And he goes, well, good Bart does this, and bad Bart does this. And I myself have run into this. I I had an atheist I was interacting with privately, and I can't hardly interact with anybody privately anymore, but privately we were were interacting, and he was a real big fan of Bart Ehrman. And so I was like, well, you know, pick a Bart Ehrman book that you find influential, and I'll I'll read it, and then I'll give you some thoughts and some pushback on it. And so he picked one, uh, I think it was Lost Christianities, and I start reading the book, and I'm noticing massive problems with it, okay? Like in this book, he's He's suggesting that Christianity had this massive diversity from the very beginning, and that basically Gnostics and, and non-Christians were actually Christians. And that so there is no real true Christianity. There's just Christianities. Except that Bart Ehrman ignores in his popular level book, he ignores the whole first century and he starts things in the second century. So he he ignores the period when the faith was laid down, waits for heresy to rise up, and then calls all the heresies Christianity, because he just skips over a century. Now that's what he's doing in his popular level book. And so I write to him and I go, yeah, here's what I'm noticing as a problem. And it was so interesting because the atheist responded to me, Mike, you should really read the scholarly version of that book. And I'm like, and that was honestly, that was when I was done with the conversation (laughs) because I'm like, look, man, I spent so much time. You recommended this book. You picked it, not me, right? Then when I brought substantive criticism, you just were like, well, go look at the scholarly one, which basically is going to have similar problems that are more nuanced And they're just harder to point out because of all the nuance that's there. There's my thoughts on that. All right, let's go to number 10. David Tathwell says, What practical steps do you do to trust in the Lord? I frequently have difficulty trusting him during difficult times, and especially when he doesn't seem to be answering prayer. Hmm. David, it's a deeply personal question. Um, Let me... Let me share several things with you that I hope you find encouraging, insightful, um, and not only encouraging for you, but also insightful maybe about yourself. Um, and I say maybe because again, I read two sentences about you, so I'm gonna you know do my best to give you some thoughts that may apply. You you need to use the wisdom to know if what I'm sh- sharing applies or not. Maybe I'm off target. Totally okay. Give me permission to try to help, but also I give you permission to say no. Nah, that wasn't that doesn't apply to me, Mike. So. Um, so the first thing to think is this. Um, um, struggling with trusting in the Lord, we can feel very guilty about it and it can create a whole anxiety in us that I think can be inappropriate. Um, there's two different kinds of like, I'm having a hard time trusting in God. There's two different levels of that. One of them is at the core of my being, I am choosing to reject trusting in Christ. The other is I am greatly tempted with unbelief or lack of trust, uh, mistrust, worries, fears, and anxieties. And these are to me two very different categories. And it's not always easy to distinguish which one you're in. But if you're in the category of at the core of my being, right, like I'm like rejecting, trusting, that doesn't seem to be the case to me because of what you describe as your difficulty is, uh, you struggle trusting your God during hard times, and especially when he doesn't seem to be answering prayer. It's not like you're saying you're doubting the resurrection of Christ. You're doubting the, the authenticity and the truthfulness of Scripture, that sort of thing. Let me drink some water real quick. So instead, I feel like what you're you're experiencing is this other thing, which is um, you have faith, but it is perhaps a bit of an immature faith. And here's the insight. So I want to encourage you. Like, say, first, let me say the encouraging part. Jesus had a man who came to him and asked for healing for his son. Jesus says all things are possible, but he gave a qualifier for him who believes. The man, he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So he exposes that he's got both belief and unbelief coexisting in him at the same time. But notice where his will was. His will was, I believe, but I, but even me choosing to trust you doesn't get rid of all the unbelief I, I feel at the same time. Help me with the unbelief. So he's stuck between two, two roads, belief and unbelief. He chooses the belief path, but he knows the unbelief one is still with him, and so he asks God for help. That's a great posture to have. And Jesus, he responds by healing the man's child. He brings healing, boom, proof that belief in the midst of unbelief is acceptable to Christ if you're choosing belief, if your will is there, choosing the belief part, and not the unbelief. That's the encouraging part to you. The other part I would say that might seem discouraging is that your faith itself is probably somewhat immature. Now you may have been a Christian for many, many years. I was a Christian for many years with immature faith. And I remember feeling that I was scared that in trials, I might have struggles with my own faith. In unanswered prayer, I might have struggles with my own faith. And you know how my faith got stronger? Trials and unanswered prayer. I'm not kidding. This is not just a preaching point. I'm just telling you my actual experience in life. I went through trials, hard trials, many trials, and I had prayers that were, I say, unanswered. God didn't do what I wanted him to do. Let's be honest. We call unanswered prayer. That's not entirely accurate because that's acting like God just ignored you. It may be just be that God said no. You know, my my cat this morning, I, was, I couldn't sleep very well last night, so one of, one of the cats was, was meowing at me to wake up, which never really happens, but t- today was. Wake up, wake up and feed me, wake up. And um, I said no. <laughs> you know? And so the cats might be thinking like, it's unanswered, meows. And it's like, no, the answer is no. And I'll stop asking. There's a time when God can say no. And that's not unanswered because it's not as though it means he doesn't care. He just ignores you. It's that there's some reason. He has a better reason than me being tired <laughs> um, to do that. So yeah, I guess my my point is, these are the things that will grow your faith. These are the things that will grow your faith. Um, let me share a scripture with you. First Peter chapter one, verse six, talks about faith, and it says that we rejoice in our faith. Let me. I will just back up, make sure you can see the context. Um, that we are kept. Uh, excuse me. Back up. But you need a little more. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's, that's you and me. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses. To an in- inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to reveal, ready to be revealed in the last time. Are you rejoicing in this? God has done this. He's given you a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. You have an inheritance, eternal glory and joy, eternal life in the presence of Christ, in the presence of God, in the presence of all our our brothers and sisters in Christ that is kept for you, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Does this bring you joy? I hope so. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. That's that's we're we're on the wrong side of heaven, right? I go through the hard times now. I have all the eternal joys and blessings. Then God's answering the prayers. He's just not giving you a yes at the moment. But all the trials will fade eventually. For now, you've been grieved by trials. Why? So that the test the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What I'm going to suggest is, um, David, that you, um, your faith is being refined like gold in the fire. It's refined. And it is the trials themselves that make your faith stronger. Now you might say my faith got weaker, not stronger. Well, you might've got weaker, but you maybe got weaker because you, because the trials showed you what your faith was really like. When you, when you cook gold, when you boil the gold, the dross rises to the surface and that gold looks nasty. That gold looks gross. As, it, as, it, as you then grab and scrape off all that dross that's on the top, you then cook it more and more rises. And this is the refining that you're going through. Your faith is that precious to God that it's more important than saying yes to all your prayers. Your faith and your, your, your learning to trust him relationally in spite of trials and hard times is so important to God that it's more important than just getting you out of your trial. That's a mature Christian view. It is not a normal Christian view for a lot of Americans, especially or people in, in first world countries, because we live such pain-free lives for the most part that, um, that we have to learn these lessons. Um, yeah, Let's go to the next question. This is number 11. Uh, Evan Findlay says, where were the Nazis as a government authority appointed by God according to Romans 13? Well, Romans 13 is pretty broad, right? Like what it, what it actually says. Let's look at it. Um, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Okay, that's a broad sweep. This isn't about specific authorities. It's not like there's no U.S. It's rather that there's no such thing as authority except from God. All authority comes back to God ultimately. Without God, nobody has a rightful claim to authority. Here's an interesting philosophical thing, right? Where you go, hey... If there is no God, why does anybody have any right to claim authority over anyone? But if there's a God, then that authority can trickle down from him through his, um, through his authority. And those that exist, second claim, have been instituted by God. I think the idea here is that the governments that do exist, whatever happens to exist, including the, um, the, whatever the, the horrible regimes that have existed in the past, they were instituted by God. What I where I think we make a mistake, though, is we think that that means whatever they do is approved by God. And that is absolutely unbiblical. Like there's I could spend a week giving you all the scriptures of all the governments doing things God hates and tells them not to do and even judges them for doing rebukes them for doing. And there's even times in scripture where, yes, the general rule, the normal rule is don't resist the authorities. Right. And specifically, it's because what they're, they're supposed to be there to punish bad and reward good. Um Specifically to punish bad, actually, is the main thing. So, um, so yeah, that's there. I don't want to violate the government in its rightful roles. But are there times where a person can go against the government? Yes, there are times. And we have examples of this. Like, look at the judges of Israel. The, the, like, you have um, uh, Ehud, Who's one of the judges of Israel? Who, you know, all the guys like this story, right? Because it's gory and and it has Ehud who, who goes and sneaks up to King Eglon, I believe his name is, who's the king of was it the was it the Moabites, whoever was oppressing Israel at the time, and Eglon is this super fat king. He's just like super super big. I mean, the Bible talks about it as being this really 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 incredibly overweight person, and um, Ehud goes up to him. And he has a knife hidden on his person he goes up he pulls the knife off and he stabs eglon in the gut and the knife goes in and doesn't come out and the sorry for the visual but this is this is just thinking biblically about king eglon's gut here (laughs) so but his guts come spilling out which is actually uh, an understandable exchange physically for that to happen crazy as that sounds so that's an assassination of a government ruler So if we were to take this Romans passage and think you can never, ever resist any government under any conditions, we would have to say that things like in the book of Judges, Ehud killing Eglon, which is seen as a heroic act, as an act that stirs the people and then they cast off this other government that's oppressing them, that that was actually a bad thing. I think this is not the case because while this is the general rule, there are exceptions, but you have to have good reason to have an exception. Because the general rule is that you need to obey them. An example for this could be parents. You know, think of it simplistically here. Obey your parents is the general rule. But what if your parents are asking you to go out and murder and steal and and do horrible things and spray paint monkeys on your neighbor's cars? Like, well, obviously you don't. Then you know. So there's there are situations where you don't. I'm not the guru for all those situations. I think life is complicated, and these some of these moral challenges get very hard. So the general rule is there, and that's what we mostly have to observe. So the Nazis were, yeah, they were appointed by God, but it may well have been right to fight them because of the way they were abusing their powers. Life is complicated. All right, number 12, um, Francisco Sierra says, in Genesis twelve ten, Abraham goes to Egypt. That decision is considered by many as disobedience to God. If going to Egypt is related to a bad decision, why is it that later God sent Jacob to Egypt? Oh, okay. So this is kind of like a typology thing. So Francisco, you've you, it sounds like you've been exposed. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you've been exposed to somebody who told you Egypt represents bad decisions and going to Egypt represents bad decisions in the Bible. And this is where I say, um, why should I believe that? And, and then there's there's like, well, well, but when Abraham went to Egypt, that was a bad decision. Yeah, but why believe that if what Abraham did was bad, that that thing's always bad? Right? Like, that that thing's always bad. It, it, not even just the disobeying or the doing something other than what God asks you to do, but just like the location he went to when he was disobeying. So Jonah fled uh, he fled away from Nineveh to was it Tarsus uh, and he tried to get relief really, does that mean going to Tarsus is always bad so like what about people that live in Tarsus is that bad and like you can't, it just starts to get a little bit weird we're getting a little bit fuzzy we're getting a little too typological and so our the typology are basically the, the the way that we view symbols and, um, and and stuff like that in the Bible we can do it good or we can do it bad and I think here we're getting a little bit into the loosey-goosey side of things so Was going to Egypt always bad? Um, Well, when Israel went down to Egypt, initially, was it bad? Before uh, or after Abraham went, Jacob went, you know, he went down there and that seemed like a good thing, right? Like you said, God sent Jacob to Egypt. This is your example. I think it's a perfect counterexample to this, Francisco. Yeah, God sends Jacob to Egypt. Um, You know, he ends up rising up to the right hand of Pharaoh and ends up helping his family during a great famine. And it ends up saving lots and lots of people. Was that bad? No, it wasn't bad. So I think the error is in trying to turn Egypt into too much of a typological picture. And part of the reason for this is we want to read the Old Testament and apply it into our lives very simply and easily. And so when we when we read Egypt, we don't have to think about historical context. We just think um, it represents bad ideas or something like that. You know, and I don't think it's that. I don't think that's true. I don't think that that's actually accurate. Um, The Bible has a lot to say about Egypt. It's not all bad. Number 13. um, I guess that was 13. Oh, no, I skipped. Oh, I reversed 12 and 13, I think. I must have done that. I'm sorry about that. Okay, so Bradley Kirkland says, Why does Paul say, Reckon ye yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, that's Romans 6.11 in the King James Version, I believe but it sure sounds like the pirate version there. I'm sorry. I'm the only person laughing in the world right now at that joke. That just makes me like it more. Um, Romans 6.11. Why does Paul say that yet? In Romans 7.14, he says, I am carnal sold under sin. Um, Well, I think the answer is just that he's talking about two different things. So Romans, I'm going to try and answer this quickly for the sake of the time we've got now. Um, as always i'm running out of time romans 6 11 i'm going to read this just from the esv it doesn't say anything substantively different than king james here just it says so you also must consider that's how i reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to god in christ jesus um notice that the active thing i have to do is consider myself dead to sin it's important that i in my mind am of the opinion no that old life is dead that life of sin and rebellion against god is dead I am dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ, it's the new life I live in Christ. So it's it, this is a mental ac- exercise that you must do in your mind to reckon yourself dead to sin. That's, that's all that's talking about there. But why then does Paul say in 7.14, he says, I am of the flesh, or carnal, sold under sin. I think in Romans 7, he's talking about the whole evolution of understanding that he has. That brings him to the knowledge of how much he needs Jesus. So in Romans seven, earlier on, and I would read the whole passage if I had a little more time in today's study, uh, today's Q and A. But Romans seven, the whole chapter, all the way to chapter eight, verse one, and a little bit further, um, Paul's basically like, "Hey, um, I am this. I am so bad. Only Jesus could save me. And so, hey, I used to think I was good. I used to think I was good, and then I got more awareness of moral goodness." The law says, like, don't lust, and I'm like, oh, man, I have really blown it, haven't I? I thought I was good because I didn't, you know, a lot of people think they go, I'm, I'm a good person. I don't, I've never killed anybody. <laughs> like, like, that's the standard for being good. I haven't murdered. <laughs> um, and then the law shows you God's holy, righteous standard for goodness, and it shows you how bad you are. And then, even though you know, this is where Paul goes on in Romans 7, even though I know this stuff is bad, I don't, I don't, I still do it. Like I don't do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. So there's something wrong with me in I'm of the flesh. I, these carnal desires, these sinful desires I have, I fulfill them even though I hate them. So he's he's showing it by descri- describing himself. He's showing every human's deep need for Jesus and salvation in Jesus. That's why he's like, I'm, I'm hopeless. At the end, he goes, wretched man that I am, but that's not the end of the story. Who will deliver me from this body of death? thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus is the deliverance. I just don't, I find the law exposes my sin and brings me to my knees and Jesus is the one who delivers me. That's why Romans 8, one is like, hey, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was totally condemned in myself and in my flesh. There's no condemnation. This is all part of the reason why in Romans 6.11, you should consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That carnal nature, consider it dead. Remember that Jesus has delivered you from it. So it all marries together nicely, I do believe. Let's go to question number fourteen. This is from Ragnar Lub- Lubrock. I'm an ex-Catholic, but I'm getting pulled back in. I don't know why, but I just like praying in Latin, the Rosary, Saint prayers, and having like scripted prayers because I don't know how to pray on my own. Um. So Ragnar, it's interesting that you're. I, I mean on two sides like i i just think it's like fascinating that this is the process you're going through and on the other side like i'm like yeah, hey, you're a real person who's really actually considering embracing a, a lot of false theology and and a and a false system because you like the way it feels not even the truth of it right i just like i like praying in latin i like the rosary i like you said saint prayer so i'm seeing you you me like praying to saints and he likes scripted prayers. but let me, let me give you a biblical example that might help. When the people of Israel left Egypt, you know, in the book of Exodus, Moses brings them out of, out of Egypt, and then he goes up the mountain to receive the commandments from God, right? And the people, they have just been delivered from Egypt. They watched the 10 plagues on the Egyptians. They witnessed all this stuff. They saw God destroy uh, Pharaoh's army in the, in the flood right in in the parting of the sea and in in the crashing of it together again they know that god didn't just show his might over egypt but he showed his his truthfulness against the false religious beliefs of the egyptians so that that is the 10 plagues all targeted different gods the egyptians worshipped so he tells you know he tells them yeah don't 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 be like that right so they they leave now the problem is that a lot of the a lot of the Egyptian practices and religious practices had bled into the Israelites culture as well. And they were engaging in many of the ungodly pagan practices that were going on in Egypt. So when they cross the sea, they've seen all these miracles. They've seen God distinguish himself from those other false gods. And what do they do? They take all the gold that they've gotten from the Egyptians. They give it to Aaron and they say, make us a God that we can worship. Moses is up the mountain Aaron builds the golden calf, and he goes, this is your God that delivered you from Egypt. Why on earth did these people, after God's incredible deliverance, go right back to a false idol? Well, one of the reasons had to be because it was just in the comfort zone. It was just in the comfort zone. It was like, hey, this is what we're used to. We're just going to do what we're used to. God then, in the laws, he, he distinguishes these things by saying, do not worship me the way that they worship their gods right? This is one of the lessons the Israelites had to learn. And if you look at how bad they were at it, you realize this is, this is, I'm not saying that it's parallel to your story, but I'm saying there's a lesson to learn in it. They were really bad at not just bringing those ungodly practices back into their lives because they liked the comfort and the familiarity and the ritual of it all. So they rebuilt the high places over and over again throughout the history of Israel. They rebuilt these high places, these pagan places. They keep trying to add other gods to God because the pagans were always um, many, many gods, right? Like Not just one, don't limit yourself. And they add other weird practices on top. And so God gives them specific instructions of how they're to behave. And they keep trying to incorporate more and more of these pagan practices into their religious stuff. What I'm suggesting is that this might be a red alert to us that... When you come out of something that has been your historic religious practice, you will very likely be pulled back into it merely out of habit and comfort. It's it's I, I hate to say it this way, but Ragnar, I think that part of it is the same reason why I like some unhealthy food that I've always ate when I was a kid. Right? Like I've said this before recently, don't know why I'm saying it again, but bologna, right? Like regular mustard, mayo, some like American cheese and like white bread like wonder bread like that is for some reason this like takes me back to my childhood this 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 exact sandwich. It's not really that good But it's just the familiarity and the nostalgia and the comfort that's there So let's look again at the practices because you are not even talking about wanting to go get pulled into Catholicism because of the theology But the practices you're doing some of them are innocuous and some are actually theologically important so Let's run through the list. You said you like praying in Latin. Dude, pray in Latin all you want. That is not a Catholic, like, this is just, like, you can, anybody can pray in any language they want, right? Like, there's nothing that's specifically Catholic about that. It's not tied to specific theology. It is connected a little bit to the fact that um, Latin became the sort of, like, official biblical language for Catholicism, and the... The, the, the services were in Latin up until recently. Even even when the people didn't speak Latin, the services were in Latin. There were people going to services all the time in Catholic uh, gatherings where they wouldn't understand what was happening because Latin was the language of the educated. And now it's la- the language of almost nobody. But, um, but yeah, then the the, the the official Bible of the Catholic Church was Jerome's Latin translation. So you've got, there's Latin, that's why Latin has be, has been seen as important there Historically, but it's, it's not a big deal if you want to pray in Latin. I don't know how well, you know, Latin It might hinder your prayers. You might feel better But you're feeling better about praying in Latin. It's not not because God understands you better not because God prefers Latin He didn't write the Bible in Latin um, There's there's nothing religiously good about Latin The best thing about Latin is it's a dead language So that terms don't change their meaning because it's not being actively used that much and so that it can be used for technical things. <laughs> That's nice. That's why scholars often use Latin. People who give names to birds and bugs and stuff, they use Latin because it's dead language, which has benefits. Um, the other thing you like is pl- praying the rosary. I think the rosary has serious issues because there are theological implications of several elements of the rosary prayer. Not every everything. A lot of it, Our Father, pray our Father. How about you pray that and stop there? Praying to saints, I think that that is a significant issue, a significant issue as a Christian to pray to saints. I I think that there's a bigger issue than most people today are realizing. Um, It has theological implications. So before you pray the rosary, ask yourself, as you you just like doing it because of habit, ask yourself, am I falling into the trap that the Israelites fell into where I'm doing it because I like it, how it affects me, but I'm not considering how true it is before God? Is it really honoring God or am I just tickling my religious funny bone? what's going on here praying to saints has theological implications that have problems scripted prayers are fine to a point jesus is not against scripted prayers he's against praying with vain repetitions that is you want to pray our father go for it you want to pray it 85 times in a row that's vain repetition almost certainly like very few people are going to be able to pray that many times in a row and actually mean it every time so, yeah, you can, you can do that. But if, but if I were you, I'd pull those prayers from Scripture and not from other sources where theology might be crammed in that is untrue. Anyway, I pray that you have wisdom there, Ragnar, and that God gives you clarity to understand. Your prayers, your worship, and your religious practice is not there to make you smile. It is there to make God smile. It is not there to tickle your religious funny bone that has been established through tradition and habit maybe more than actual theology and beliefs. It is there to serve God. And just like he had to shake the Israelites out of habits that they had gathered and kept wanting to do, maybe that needs to happen in your life. Let's go to Dennis who says, uh, what is your general advice on understanding Bible verses that we don't understand? I mean, the general advice is first, uh, back up and read the whole section in context. Uh, You don't understand the verse? First, just try to understand the overall context. What What is happening in the big picture in this section? then look at the verse, and if you still don't understand it, I recommend, and I always do this in my own Bible studies, is come up with a list of questions that if you did know the answers to these questions, you'd understand the passage. And I don't mean questions like, what does it mean? <laughs> right? Like, questions more like, um, um, let's let's just put a verse up and we'll, we'll say, okay, consider yourselves dead to sin. Well, what, is, what does it mean to consider myself dead to sin? What does it mean? Don't just say, what does it mean? Say, what does it mean to consider myself alive to God? Why do I consider myself? Why is my internal opinion about these things important? Why is it that I must? What happens if I don't do this? What happens if I do do this? Let me look up and down at all of the different verses around it to gather more information and seek answers to these questions. Um, Are there other verses that say dead to sin? Can I look any of those up? These are just questions that you gather, and and they help with understanding of verse. So start with the, the larger context, and then start asking harder questions about the smaller context. There's my counsel, and then and then the last thing would be to survey. After you've done this, not before, survey multiple different scholars or or teachers or commentators or pastors on how they answer the questions you have um, don't just read one commentator. Don't just listen to one YouTube Bible teacher. Please don't just listen to me. If you listen to me, then you won't just listen to me. Cause I tell you not to the, the reason for this is, um, we, you don't want to limit your understanding of scripture to the depth and scope of only one individual. <laughs> like, why would you do that? God's placed many teachers in the body of Christ. And, um, And often you'll hear one who goes, well, obviously it means this. But then they don't explain how they got there. And then someone else goes, obviously. And it means the opposite thing. And then you find one who walks through each point and establishes it carefully. And then you found some gold. Let's go to 16. Elijah B. says, my dad thinks that the Lord's Supper should only be on Passover. Because when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he meant Passover. Any evidence in scripture for weekly communion? Oh, um, my mind kind of blinks a bit on some of the details here, but. Um, so in Acts 2.42, this may be communion here, um, the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Um, they could have just been eating meals together, but. It seems, and, and I guess I would look at other verses that talk about similar things here. But I would, I would, I would, um, yeah, I would look at other verses that talk about breaking bread and try to compile some of that stuff together for you, which I don't have time to do right off the top of my head here at the moment. Uh, there's other things as well. First um, Corinthians eleven. We'll be in this actually pretty soon, this section here for the Women in Ministry study, once I'm ready for the next one on head covering. <laughs> but, but this is a section in First Corinthians 11 where Paul's rebuking them for their conduct during the Lord's Supper. He says, In the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, okay, so first off, he's used the phrase come together multiple times. When you come together, he just means on their regular gatherings every week they gather. When you come together as a church, again, he means the regular weekly gatherings, First Corinthians 11, right? Then verse 20, he continues the same idea. When you come together, it is not, uh, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Now, he's complaining against them because they eat the Lord's Supper every time they gather, every week, but that they're not observing it properly. So then he says, it's not the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One gets hungry, another gets drunk. So they're, they're profaning the Lord's Supper. Uh, then he complains against them, among other things, that they're not observing. I'll let you guys read this stuff on the screen here. They're not observing what Jesus gave them. And then he gives um, a statement that kind of talks about proximity of how often communion happens. He goes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I think that this is, um, uh, this was happening weekly in Corinth and Paul does not rebuke them for it he doesn't say they should only do it once a year at passover this is happening every week now i read a church history book one time about specifically rome early rome and church, roman church history which is very interesting um well it's super boring and interesting at the same time it's the way things are but it talked about how as there as there arose priest, priests priests and a priesthood they started separating communion from the regular weekly gathering so it used to be just like the weekly gathering they gather and they have communion and they Worship and they do everything and then they started separating the communion from it And then you had to have approval to be to receive communion and stuff that happened later after the Apostles time where like, you know As as things start evolving on their own apart from Scripture even apart from what what the what has been laid down by the Apostles So I guess first Corinthians 11 might be the best proof for that That you might be able to go to and say hey, this is happening all the time Does that mean you have to do it every week? Not exactly. It does mean that in first Corinthians. They were doing it every week Some people do it once a year I think that seems um, probably a lot less than what would be ideal. And mm-hmm. for a lot of pastors and a lot of churches, it's like, oh, every week, that's just, you know, we have a limited time with our congregation and that's a lot of work to put it together. It doesn't, not just a lot of work, rather, it, it takes a chunk of time out of a busy thing. We've got announcements and we have worship and we have Bible study. But the older I get, the more I'm like inclined to think that every week would be better. Uh, for communion. Yeah. But it's not a rule in Scripture, so maybe it better doesn't mean it has to be that. Um, But it should be done on a regular basis, or else we're not remembering the Lord on a regular basis, it seems. All right, number 17, uh, Mianke Grayling says, I love your work. Thanks for everything. Well, thank you. Um, I love getting to do it. I'm a new youth leader, and we have teenagers who are severely abused at home. What messages do we focus on to help them? What else can we do to help? Um, I would actually encourage you not to focus on public messages to deal with people's private issues that you know about. Um, okay, this is, this is my own counsel as a, as, a, as, a, as a teacher, my advice. When you have a specific person in the congregation or in the gathering who you're worried about and they need help and you're thinking, this Sunday's message will really be for them, I think that you you you're not doing this in the optimal way i think you should bring a message for the whole body of christ bless everybody don't target individuals with your messages especially if you're upset with them or frustrated Do you want to fix them this is a bad idea instead go and talk to them that's better go and reach out to them some of the things that a person who's abused can use is well for one thing if their abuse is extreme then there needs to be like action taken you may need to report this abuse right like not just because you're legally a mandated reporter but because it may be the morally right thing to do as well like that so that depends on what you mean by abuse is it ongoing you said they're severely abused at home there it may be that there needs to be real serious action taken i would absolutely involve the other leaders the elders of the church to make sure they're aware of the situation that's going on give them as many details as you can and get counsel on how to handle this the best way Um, other things you can do is just giving them a safe place to be when you're a, a person, a student, who has a really hostile environment at home, just having a peaceful place to be is massive, is such a relief, is such a kindness, is such a nice thing to, to, to just get out of the house and just be somewhere where there's no hostility and there's no issues. That can be a, a good, good, good thing. So provide them provide them for that, uh, that place. And other stuff is just take them out to lunch them take them take out to lunch you know on Tuesday after school or something like that like it doesn't have to be messages you bring on Sunday mornings that minister to them specifically build relationship engage with them get to know them better and don't be afraid to to, um, to uh, take things to the next level if it if, if if it if it warrants it depending on what's going on at the time um, life is complicated those types of questions are hard yeah um i think that getting a student like that out you see the teenagers who are abused maybe their brother and sister or something like that maybe not at any rate getting them out where they're you're alone with them or maybe if, if it's opposite sex make sure that you have like a female leader there as well that kind of thing and then just asking them questions like hey we just we care about you can we pray for you what's going on at home it seems like seems like there might be some abuse going on is that real don't be afraid of, of burning the bridge to the relationship because the alternative is you never say anything and you never help them because you're just too worried about bringing it up. Um, as a, a lot of kids feel like talking won't help anything, telling other people won't help anything. So it might be helpful to try to build that personal relationship so that they feel the help of talking about it and then they, they're more comfortable opening up more. Anyway, that's a bunch of stuff that you might consider. I hope, man, I hope it helps. Uh, Marcelina Nickick says, What do you think of people that commit murder and then state God told me to do it? Um, well, I'm going to say something controversial that will absolutely delight atheists because they like to take, not all atheists, some, some internet atheists like to take things out of context and use it to uh, make me look bad. I don't care. Um, <laughs> you already hated me anyways. It's not like anything changed. Um, if anything, I, I'm just glad... People like hate follow me. <laughs> like oh, at least that's there. You know, maybe they're hearing the gospel. maybe God willing, there's there's like some truth of Christ that will will eke through there, you know. So I'm gonna say something here. Um, if God really told them to do it, then they were right. If God didn't tell them to do it, then they were wrong. and they were just a murderer and a delusional murderer who's blaming God, which just makes it worse. God does have a right to tell now let me now let me give an analogy that might help people swallow this better because I, I feel the rejection that people would have to this naturally um, let's say that um, America gets involved in a in a uh, a just war right or, or let's I mean let's not even do that let's just say that you have a a police officer who um, is is getting involved in some some kind of like school horrible school shooting type thing right and he gets permission from the government and from the the local police department and all that that when he sees a a person on campus with a gun he just opens fire and so he shoots them and then someone's like how dare you shoot that that person and he goes well like the government told me to there's an element of this that that really is the facts like the government actually just Gave him a badge and a gun and approved him and gave him policies that he's supposed to operate by And so in a sense the government just told him to And that is an actual defense like if, if that wasn't in place Then you'd have to have other legal justifications other than the, the government told him Maybe in court they would say no no, no this was urgent enough where would, we would break the normal rules that kind of thing uh, Military is the same way Now the government's flawed so the government might tell you to do something and they're wrong like in military, there could be a war that's unjust and saying the government told you to isn't a good enough excuse because there is a God in heaven who disapproves. But if God himself actually tells you, he's like, hey, I am the ultimate governor of all of life and I have judicially said that person is going to die and I'm, I'm telling you to do it. Yeah. Now, historically, as a Christian, do I expect this to happen? Not really. Um biblically does it happen do we have like is the apostle paul like every few years he's just like turns into jason born and he's like god told me to kill simon the sorcerer <laughs> no no the worst thing the apostles have done was to tell someone you're not part of our church anymore if you're going to keep living in sin like that you know god takes care of them jesus says my kingdom is not of this world otherwise my servants would fight so we don't fight to establish the, the christianity to establish the kingdom like this is god told me not to in other words I don't because God told me not to. So as a Christian, in principle, if God tells you to to kill someone, yes, you should, it's God. But in practical reality, I really don't expect this to happen. Um, Not that there can never be an exception, but if anybody comes up to me and says, God told me to kill so-and-so, my default is to think they're probably wrong because there's a lot more weirdos out there than there are people that God is telling to do something like that. There's my answer. (laughs) Okay, let's go to 19. Uh, C.N. Ramsey says, what are your thoughts on the idea of corporate election as opposed to individual election? I appreciate your ministry more than you will ever know. Thanks, man. I really, that does encourage me to hear that. Um, okay, corporate election and individual election. Why why is this important? Um, so on, on one side, you've got, and forgive me, Armenians and Calvinists, there's a lot more nuance here than I'm going to be able to express. I hope I don't get anything wrong, but I'll do my best. So take this with a grain of salt. It's been a while since I looked into this, but... On one side, you have the Arminians. Now, the Arminians, forgive me for giving you too many terminology things here, as I said, I usually try not to do. Um, but again, you can just pause videos and come back later. Um, <clears throat> so the Arminians believe, right, that um, that man's free will is, is operating in whether or not he gets saved. And the Calvinists think, like, no, that's not the case. Um, or something like that. Maybe they believe in compatibilism or whatever. I'm not going to get into all that. But basically... One group's like, hey, you make a decision to believe or not believe, you can accept or reject the call of the Holy Spirit to get saved. And the other side's like, no, you can't. You will either accept it or he doesn't really call you. And one of the ways they prove their sides is the Calvinist side says, hey, um, election's individual. God individually chooses who will get saved. And therefore, the choice is God's not yours or something along those lines. That's that's a crude way of putting it, but, but that's how election often comes off to people. And a response to that is, oh, no, election's not individual, it's corporate. So it's not like God looks at you and says, hey, Joe, hey, Mary, right? Hey, you, you're going to get saved. Not you, though, Ted. Sorry, Ted, (laughs) you're not going to saved. I didn't choose you. I chose you maybe for something else. Um, Rather, the more Arminian side says, no, no, election is more like this. I choose Christ and whoever's in Christ. So it's corporate. I choose the body of believers who are incorporated into Jesus. So everybody who puts faith in Christ is chosen by virtue of this sort of corporate election of choosing those that are in Christ. And there's a guy who wrote a book on this called Elect in the Sun that you might look at that um, is more of like a heavy scholarly type work that kind of defends that view. Um, So... The the individual election view is used to support the Calvinist side. The uh, corporate election view is used to support the Arminian side. And I'm okay with both views personally. And maybe I shouldn't be right. but But to my understanding, I'm okay with God choosing those who are in Christ and then choosing individually who will get saved and us choosing whether or not we receive Christ because I don't think that God's choice determined my choice but coincides with it. And so I'm... In between the two camps, in a sense, saying, I don't see the problem here that you guys are fighting over. M- maybe uh maybe I'm missing something, or maybe maybe, maybe you are. There's some thoughts on that. Number nine oh number twenty. Last question for today. Chris Kairos says, Hi Mike, thanks for all you do. Well, you're very, very welcome. Thank you guys for being here, for sitting in, for wanting to think biblically about everything, for like you guys have made this work. Just think about this, like, this ministry is successful because, in a, I mean, in the sense that it, it's able to exist because there's actually a bunch of people all over the place who want to just think biblically about things. Like, I don't need the bells and whistles, man. I just want biblical truth. Those are the bells and whistles to me. <laughs> it's exciting. Um, uh, so, thanks for all you do. You said, uh, you are my go-to every week while I'm doing hours of yard work. Nice, nice. Oh, I hate yard work. <laughs> I'd rather do so many other things. (laughs) Um, How should we biblically respond to someone when they say they believe Jesus is the Torah? Right. I've heard this before in different forms. So Torah is the law. Um, it's 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 a Jewish word, right? That means the law. And this refers usually to the first five books of Moses. It can also refer to like just the stuff, the contents and the teachings of the law, that sort of thing. Um, then there's the, the, the Netavim and the Ketavim, these two other sections of the Old Testament. So you have the Torah, the, the, then you have the, the prophets and the writings and you add those all together. You have the same exact Old Testament that Christians have. We just use different terms. We don't say Torah. We say Pentateuch, but, um, I've more often heard people say that Jesus is the word. And by that, they mean Jesus is the Bible. And here's where I think we, there's a truth that's here, but we're getting clumsy Um, Jesus, let let me give you an example. Um, Jesus isn't the Bible or the Torah because Jesus isn't a book. That seems pretty solid to me. Jesus isn't the Bible or the Torah because Jesus has always existed, but the Torah has not. Now, there are some who want to claim like, oh, forever, you, forever, oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. That doesn't mean it was eternal in existence. It's ontology was always in existence for all eternity. It just means that God is always faithful to do what he says. That's all it's saying. So I, I wouldn't be able to use that argument. I don't think that works. To confuse Jesus in the Bible is to, to you end up making sentences that don't make a lot of logical sense. Right? Like, and, and here's how I hear it used often. It's like, I go well. The Bible says this, and they go yeah, but Jesus this, and I go yeah, but I mean, you, you, but Jesus would agree with the Old Testament too. He's not—he's not, he's not going to just contradict. But Jesus is the Word, man. Jesus is the Word. Yeah, cool, man. And then they go surfing, <laughs> and you're like, you're not thinking carefully here. If Jesus is the Bible, then he, he still can't contradict it because he just is the. But that means that like, I've got Jesus right here, like in physical form, in, does it mean I'm printing Jesus when I print the Bible? What, like, we're you're just getting weird. Like, so when people say this, I think they get it from the idea that in first in John chapter one, rather, it says, "In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God." But that word, Logos, word does not mean Torah, and nobody thought it meant Torah, and it shouldn't be interpreted to mean Torah or even Scripture. This Logos has meaning. Um, it's used in Philo. It's used in other places, and the word itself it has meaning, but it 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 means like um, it can mean logic and other things like that. But basically, the it's it, sorry, this gets complicated for question number twenty. So I'll say the meaning that's not on the table for for how Jesus is the Word is that Jesus is the Scriptures. And one simple way to see Jesus separating himself from the Bible as they're different things, different beings, is when he says, the scriptures speak of me. Right, the scriptures speak of me. That that In that sentence, he's separating his identity from the scripture. Right? Like he's separating it, so that means he's not the actual scripture. Usually when I hear people say this, I don't know when they say Jesus is Torah, what they mean exactly, like what they do with that, because you would never say this unless you wanted to do something with it. This is one of those kinds of theological statements. You wouldn't make it unless you had an agenda behind it. What is your agenda behind it? Usually when people say Jesus is the Bible or Jesus is the word and therefore their conclusion is, therefore, I don't need to emphasize the Bible that much. I just need to emphasize Jesus. But like you wouldn't even know who Jesus is without the Bible. Any de-emphasis of scripture, any de-emphasis of the goodness and the sufficiency and the truthfulness of the word of God in the name of Jesus is definitely a betrayal of Jesus and not consistent with who he is. Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. But yeah. But yeah, the scripture speaks of him, but it's not him. Anyway, I hope that helps. Um, Yeah, show me a a Bible verse that says that Jesus is the Torah. Um, That sounds pious, but I, I don't even know what people mean by it. And When people give you theological statements that you find utterly confusing, you don't have to believe them. You can just say, I'm on the fence on that. I don't really know what you mean. That's a nice safe thing to do. (laughs) Let me uh, close this in prayer and then uh, I'll tell you guys what I have planned for next week and the few weeks coming. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful that you have revealed us in your word, revealed yourself to us in your word and you revealed Jesus to us just in detail. But of course, Jesus isn't scripture. I can't have a relationship with scripture the way I have a relationship with Jesus. And I'm grateful. We're grateful, Lord, for the salvation we have in Christ, for him who is in us and with us at all times. We learn from the word. We're directed by the word. But Jesus is is is, is our savior. And we love you. We pray that you would let us shine our lights before the world to live holy and righteous before the world, but not for their eyes to see us and give us attention and glory, but for them to see you and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so coming up, um, next Friday, I'm not doing a q and I'm gonna be doing every other Friday for at least a little season because I'm completely uh, behind schedule. At least my schedule for things, I have some stuff I'm not ready to announce yet that has been on the back burner as I'm finishing Women in Ministry, and I have got to get started on those things. There's actual deadlines I can't change on some of this stuff, So I've got to just do a, I'm just study, study, study. And the next study in women in ministry is going to be on head coverings. First Corinthians 11, the head coverings passage. This has been one of the most difficult things for me to get good answers on. I'm still thoroughly confused, but I'm still just hammering every day, trying to, trying to vet and understand these things better. Thoroughly confused on certain aspects, not others. And I will give you guys the best teaching I can on the topic. I may have to come at you at the end of it all and say, Hey, What what historically was the was going on in the culture with head coverings and and say I'm not really sure here's some different theories on it I hate to do that, but it really is that convoluted and the scholarship is a mess It's it's a mess. It's a bunch of people all going ten different directions um, And it's difficult to determine which one is 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 going in a reasonable direction (laughs) And maybe because there just isn't enough data in history to establish the reality of certain aspects of it. it It makes it harder to interpret the passage anyway, that's coming Um, Not this Monday, though, and not next Friday, this coming Friday. We're not going to have any streams this coming week. I will see you guys the following week, maybe on Monday, definitely on Friday. Anyway, that is all. Lord bless you and keep you.